Good morning. Our scripture today is from John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. If you'd please stand with me to honor God's word. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your world, and the wor- or your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. These are the words of the Lord. Good morning. It's a delight to be with you this morning uh, to share the reading of the word. And as we get started, um, I would just ask if you would join me in prayer for a moment. Holy Father, we are grateful that, uh, that you have spoken and that, as you say, you, you called out, your, your son called out to you to sanctify your people in the truth, that your word is truth. So we ask that we would, in fact, be, be set apart, be consecrated this morning through the, through the reading and the study of your word. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, that in a passage like this that is so rich and so deep that it's almost overwhelming to, to be able to reach the heights and the depths of it, um, we ask that, that you would speak to us and teach our hearts, first of all, to inflame our affections for you, that we would love you more because of who we see that you are in the page, but also that we would that we would understand what you have called us to and what you have called us to right now. Um, And we ask that you would continue to teach us this through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So here we are in John chapter 17, um, known as the high priestly prayer. And we are newly into this. Uh, Last week, Scott covered the, the sort of the preamble to the prayer where Jesus describes his relationship to the Father and, and expresses his glory 
both the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son uh, revealed through the Son's ministry and the, their intertwining, their relationship as Father and Son, both equally part of the Godhead. And so now he turns, he turns and begins to not just cover who he is, but then because of who he is, what he is calling on God to do for his people. Um, and in doing this, I want to go to the very end of this little section. Jesus is primarily praying at this time for his disciples. We're cheating a little bit because, of course, we do recognize the fact that throughout the high priestly prayer, it's not just for his disciples. This section is, but he'll transition. And we understand that all of it, all of Scripture, is applied to God's people. And so we're not just going to be applying this to what Jesus said about the disciples, but about ourselves as well, how it affects us. But if we look at the end of the section in, in verse 19, Jesus has said that he, he asks that they be sanctified in the truth. And then he's, he says, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And so this morning, I want us to understand that in context that Jesus' prayer here is a prayer of consecration, is a prayer of sanctification for his disciples. The word there that is used, um, hagiatso, which can mean sanctify, to be made holy, to consecrate, all of those things. It is, it is a description of being set apart for something God specifically intended for a specific purpose and use. And so it's, it is interesting that Jesus points out the fact, he says that I am consecrating myself. It uses the same verb about him and his consecration as he then says he is calling out to God to do for his disciples to sanctify them as well in the truth. So the context of this prayer is God calling on them saying, I am sanctifying, for my, uh, I am sanctifying myself for the purpose that you have set out to me, namely to go to the cross to die for our sins, to be the Messiah that we all needed. And then that he is also then praying because of what he is doing and in light of what he is doing, he is praying for them to be sanctified, to be consecrated to what he's calling them to do as well. So this is, this is a prayer of sanctification, but specifically it is a prayer of sanctification of uh, the new covenant in many respects. If you remember just a couple of chapters ago, we've gone through the upper, we've been in the upper room discourse for a while, and just a couple of chapters ago, he goes through the institution of the Lord's Supper, where he offers the bread and says, this is my body broken for you. And he offers the cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And as he prays, as we work through this passage, we'll see that as, as he is describing uh, what he is praying for, for his disciples. We see elements that we see throughout the covenants in the Old Testament. There's, there's normally a few different things that happen in a covenant uh, situation. We know that in any time that a covenant is made, blood is involved. Um, but we also know that there are terms that are listed. There, there are promises that are given. Uh, but at a base level, there are always a couple of things that are done besides God describing himself and who he is. There, in every covenant, there is a covering of 
the identity of the people to whom God is covenanting himself with. So if you go back to Genesis 3, 15 through 19, the, what we call the Adamic covenant, where, where Adam and Eve, they had been created, they had been set in the garden, they had been given the purpose by God of, of tending, the, tending the garden, of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, of having dominion over everything. They sinned, they, they fell, they broke the image of God and man. And so God institutes the covenant with Adam their new identity is that they are still in the empty, where he describes that now under this covenant, their new identity is that they are still in the image of God, but that they are, they are sinful and broken mankind, that they are under a curse, that they labor under a curse. And not only do they have that as an identity, but they, they have a purpose outlined in the covenant as well, that they have still the given purpose, the stated purpose that God had given them to be fruitful, to fill the earth to multiply, and then to have dominion over it. But now, because of the curse, because of the curses, this purpose that they are going to have to carry out is going to be harder. Childbearing is going to be much more painful than it would have been, the curse on Eve. Also, the fact that Adam is going to... There is a new identity and a new purpose that are stated. If you carried on into Genesis chapter 12 to the covenant with Abraham... The identity and purpose look like this, that God says, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make of you a great nation. He says, you're going to be the father of a, of a new nation. So that is his new identity, that even though he is old, even though he has no children, God says, this is the identity that I'm outlining for you. And then the new purpose is that God is going to raise up a nation through which all the earth is going to be blessed, that the Messiah is going to come through this dedicated and special people. If we carry on to the Mosaic Covenant, Exodus 19. I want to flip over to that really quickly because I want to spend a little bit more time here. We're going to come back to this a couple of points. So I want to actually read it for you this morning. In Exodus chapter 19 uh, is the first place that it is outlined. And it's outlined very simply. God says, um, when Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus shall, you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So the identity that God proclaims to Israel is that you are my people. I am your God. You are my people. You are my treasured possession, he says. And their purpose that is stated there is that they are to be a kingdom of priests among the nations, that they are going to be essentially those who introduce the rest of the nations, the rest of the world to God. The conditions, of course, being that they will keep his commandments. Um, but that is what is set out. And you could go through the other covenants as well. The same, uh, the same is also true if you look at God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, where David is proclaimed to be that God is going to make him sort of the prototype of a king, of a, 
a righteous and good king, one of fame, one of the great ones, as it says, uh, and also gives him the purpose that, that he is going to sire the royal line that will ultimately be the kingdom without end, that the Messiah will come from his lineage. And within this, we notice that if, if we look through the, the passage of this prayer, that God also addresses both the identity and not only the identity, but the purpose that is set up for his disciples under the new covenant. So he is praying this consecration that the new covenant will, be not, will not just be in effect, but will be fully realized uh, in their lives. First of all, we see this in God's use of the word name. We see that, that God consecrates their identity, first of all, by using the, the concept of a name. This gets repeated throughout the passage. It's repeated three times. It's repeated in verse 6, verse 11, and verse 12. In verse 6, we see that he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Again, in verse 11, it says, I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then again in verse 12, he says, I have, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. Name is an interesting concept throughout the Bible because as we see in the pages of Scripture, anytime God talks about his own name, that, the idea of that name goes hand in hand with him revealing himself, with him revealing his presence, his character, his person. So we see that in a few different places. Um, we see that for one thing in, in Exodus chapter 34. This is one of the most famous places where God tells Moses that he wants him to hide himself in a rock. He's going to cause, he's going to cause all of his glory. Moses had asked to see his glory in chapter 33. And God says, I'm going to cause all of my goodness, all of my glory to pass before you. You can't see my face, but you will see my back. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord. And so it says in verse 5 of Exodus 34, that's before him and proclaim, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious to show anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So God proclaims, his own name there. And as he does it, when he's saying, when he's proclaiming his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, he is proclaiming it in tandem with describing who he is, revealing himself. And Jesus is saying that he has the name that the Father give him. He has, he has brought God's name to us. He has brought God's name to earth. I mean, this totally makes sense because if you look back at chapter one of John, we recognize that we're told that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. But then even beyond that, he says that no one has seen God. No one has seen God. Instead, in the preamble, in verse, uh, in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side 
which means Jesus, he has made him known. That Jesus has fully revealed the name of God, as he says here. Jesus has fully revealed the name, the character, the actions of God. Throughout all of his life and ministry, Jesus has been proclaiming who God is. And now he is, he is saying, I am setting that same name, the name that I received from you, I am giving to them. I am putting on them. So that then, as later when he is asking that God keep them in his name, it means they bear his name. Their identity has been set by God, that we are now his people. So the promise of Exodus 19, the old covenant that asked that, that, we, that God's people would be his treasured possession, his chosen people, if they fulfilled his covenant, and Israel did not fulfill the covenant, that promise that was unfulfilled in the old covenant is now coming to pass here. Jesus is saying, I have your name, I am setting it on them, and they belong to you, they belong to me, they belong to us. And so when, God asked, when Jesus asked that the Father keep them in his name, it is the promise that, our, that the disciples' identity and through them, through that legacy of faith, our identity in Christ is set that we belong to him, that we are the fulfillment of the inheritance of promise that was first pro promised in the old covenant. Not only that, but we see another concept repeated regularly throughout this passage, the idea of word and truth. It's repeated four different times. First in verse 6, again, he says that when he, <clears throat> excuse me, not only that he manifested your name, God's name, but that he then gave it to them and they have kept your word. So they have kept your word. In verse 8, he then also says that, <clears throat> that through the word, the truth, so those two things, the word and the truth are always intertwined here. They have come to know the truth that he is, in fact, God, that Jesus came from God, that he was sent by him, that, and that they have believed that God the Father sent the Son. In verse um, excuse me, in verse 14, if we skip over, we see, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus passes on his message. It's been believed. And now that they have received that message, it has transformed them so that they are no longer part of the world as they were. They are no longer in the world. They are no longer of the world. They are now separate from the world. And so the world hates them. And then in verse 17, we see that he says, excuse me, that he says, not only are they not of the world, but he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then goes on to carry out and say that he is sending them out into the world as a result. So he is calling on God to continue to set them apart through the word, through the truth. So in these two things, in God's name and then in God's word, Jesus has set an identity on his people. 
And the word specifically, you see at the very beginning, the word connects to connects inextricably to belief. That he he received the word from the Father. He communicates it to the disciples. The disciples receive the word and they believe in who he is. They believe that he is the Messiah that was promised. They believe that he came from the Father. And as a result, then they follow. So they, they are believers in truth. And that they continue in that. And then, so that makes them something different from the world. Means that this is the identity. This is the core of our identity as Christians. Is one, that we have God's name, that we are now his people. And two, that we have been made keepers of his word. That we have been sanctified through and set apart through his word. It's interesting that Jesus says that they have kept my word. Because if, again, if we go back to the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, in the old covenant, it was, if you keep my words, if you obey all the things that I will command you to do, then you will be my treasured possession. Then you will be my royal priesthood. And that did not work out. But of course, here in, in this, where Jesus is talking about the word that has been received, he says, they have kept my word. And it's interesting that, that it does tie itself to belief in him because that reminds us of the new covenant, that it is not based on our performance, that it is not based on our keeping of the law, it is not based on our keeping of God's commands, it is based on the fact that Jesus has come into the world and Jesus has fulfilled the righteousness that we need. He has kept the law perfectly. He will die to be the sacrifice in our place. And he is then going to be the, the, the starting point that says, they are, they are mine. They have kept my word because they have placed their trust in me, the source of life or of their idea of salvation. So that is now the core of their identity that he calls on them. But he doesn't just consecrate their identity in his prayer to the Father. He consecrates their purpose. He sends them out in the world in verse 18. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus Jesus essentially is placing on his disciples now the same mission that he has had, the communication of the message of the gospel. Now, obviously, it is not the exact same. It is not identical. It's not their call to, to then go to the cross and die for sins. But they have the same mission that he has been, that he has been describing. He has the name of God. He has the message of God that was given to him from the Father and that he has now set on them. And so when he says, as I was sent into the world, as you sent me into the world, I am sending them, he is essentially calling, this is a precursor to the Great Commission, right? This is God saying, I am sending them out to carry on the same thing, to carry on the same mission. They are going to be my witnesses. They are going to be the light that shows who God is. They are going to be the way my name is communicated in the face of the nations. They're going to be the ones 
who show people what, is, what God is like through their actions, through their life, through their words. And they're going to be the ones who are entrusted with the message, the promise of salvation through the gospel. They're going to be the ones who share it abroad, starting in, as we know, in, first in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria and to the othermost parts of the earth. So he sends them out, consecrating their purpose to send them out into the world. And then also knowing that, that they don't just go on their own, but they are being protected and guarded and governed by him every step of the way. This is woven throughout because, of course, he's talking about the relationship that Jesus, Jesus has with the Father and that then he is communicating to the disciples all throughout this passage. But in a couple of places, he specifically talks about how God is going to keep them. In, verses 11, in verse 11, he says, keep them in your name. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture must, might be fulfilled. So his point is, while I was here with them, while I was here in this world with them, I have chosen them, I have called them out, they are mine, they are under our name, and I have made sure that they, that they maintained their faith. I have, made, I have made sure that they have persevered in their faith. They are ours, but I'm going away. And so now he's, pleading, he's calling out to the Father, that the Father will keep them in the same way. While Jesus walked with them, the only person who turned away out of the original disciples was who? Was Judas. Yeah, and the only reason why he says that he, that he turned away is because he was the son of destruction. His purpose among the 12 was to be the betrayer. He was not one who was, in fact, a true believer. He was called and offered the chance to be a true believer, the same as all the others, but he wasn't one. He never was. The one who made sure that the scriptures were fulfilled, that Jesus would be betrayed, handed into the hands of evil men, and sacrificed for our sins. All the others survive, maintain. And of course, we know that after Jesus' death, like this prayer, you want to talk about a, a prayer fulfilled and realized. Think about what happens in the months and years following Jesus' death and resurrection? Think about the things that have, ha that have happened just in the last couple of chapters. You go from when Jesus talks about people betraying him, an argument breaks out among the disciples, and they're all trying to figure out who it's going to be, and they want to they know if it's them. And, and when Jesus is talking about going, aw going away from them, they want to know how it's going to affect them. And when Jesus talks about Peter going to deny him, Jesus is arguing because he is absolutely convinced that he is, he is good enough. He is strong enough. He would never betray his master. And of course, then Jesus gets betrayed. They scatter. They show their weakness. Peter shows his frailty in denying Jesus three times. Jesus comes back to life and is resurrected comes to meet with them, reestablishes their faith, reestablishes their mission in the Great Commission. And then the amazing things that we see as they passionately proclaim the gospel before 
all those at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, before the ruling council in Acts chapter 3 and 4, um, and, and a host of other people. It just goes on and on and on. We see them going from, from strength to strength. That, yes, Jesus' prayer is, in fact, realized. That God does, in fact, keep them by his name. They continue to belong to him. And then I love the, the other one that's listed here is in verse 15. It says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Just as he told Jesus, uh, just as Jesus told Peter, excuse me, that he had prayed that God would rescue Peter, that Satan would not sift him, that Satan would not be able to have him. Um, he prays for all of them. I do not take them out of the world because that is not their mission, because they are supposed to remain. They are supposed to carry on his work, but instead praying that the evil one would not have them. You think of the things that they went through, and it, and it certainly begs the question of, wait, did, is this part of the, the promise? Is this part of the prayer one that like wasn't really all that successful? Because let's face it, a lot of terrible, awful things happened to the disciples. And it didn't seem to take very long before those things started coming to pass. I mean, right away in their preaching, they get thrown in prison. They get beaten. Um, but if you look at the response, how they responded to, to these sorts of things, the evil one does not have them because the evil one never gains a hold on them. The evil one never gains control of them because in the afflictions that they're given, they count themselves overjoyed to be worthy of sharing in Christ's suffering. That's a recurring theme among the disciples, that they count themselves overjoyed to be worthy of Christ's suffering. So God is called by Jesus to keep them in his name, which he will, and to keep them from the evil one, which he does. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear from what Satan can throw at us because God gives himself to us. And as a result, he says that he is praying that they will have the same joy, that they will enjoy the same joy that is in the Father and the Son themselves. In verse 13, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So we have these, these promises that we are part of a grand new covenant. That we are part of a grand new covenant. That Jesus has already met the standards to introduce the new covenant. Satisfied God's righteous demands. That, that he then offered himself up as a sacrifice for us, as a ransom for many, the ground of our faith, the ground of our entrance into the new covenant, so that we become what was promised in the old. We become the chosen people of God. We become the royal priesthood that makes him known to the nations. This morning, I'm just curious, uh, do you find yourselves, do you find yourselves at peace with God. If you are a believer here this morning, do you recognize that you have been 
bought by him, and so you belong to him, you are covered with his name? Or are you wrestling with guilt of how you've been performing in the last week or month or longer? If you are not sure where you stand with the Lord this morning, have you spent time looking into the face of Jesus? Do you know who he is? Have you come to his word, to his message, and seen whether you will be one who receives the word and puts your faith in him? And then for those of you who, again, who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, I asked this morning, does it, does it incite you in a way that makes you want to tell others? Is your, is your love cold or struggling or wavering? Or is it something where... Can you see in these pages? Can you see what God has given to you? Can you see the way he offers himself to you and say, I want to give myself to you. I want to give my all to you. And have it affect the way you communicate to those you meet on a daily basis, whether jobs uh, and coworkers, um, whether the way you, <clears throat> excuse me, the way you interact with people in grocery lines, or in paying your bills, or a host of different ways. How do you handle telemarketers? I mean, there's all sorts of ways. How will the gospel affect how you communicate and live before others to be that royal priesthood? This morning, I pray that we will be encouraged by who Jesus is and what he has done for us again. And that just as Jesus prayed over the disciples, it will be true of us that we will be kept in his name so that we bear it with great reverence and awe and so that we, we will be sanctified to his word, to his mission, and carry it to those around us. Uh, if I can get the band to go ahead and come forward. At this time, we're going to follow the message that Jesus instituted in the Lord's Supper. This is our weekly practice. And for those of you who are new with us, I just, just want to give you a heads up to how we do this. We have, uh, we're going to have tables here. There's two here in the front. There's one in the back. There is wine and there is grape juice. Uh, so if you are a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, if you have been bought by his blood, and that is your testimony, we invite you to, to come up as the band plays whenever you are ready. Uh, have a moment to, to commune with God and then at, at your leisure uh, to come up and take whether the wine or the juice, uh, whichever one you prefer, and the bread. This is also a good time if you, if you would like to give.